Pastor Burkholz, he served as a pastor of a brand new mission in Colorado uh, when he got out of the SEM. Did uh, mission work in Grenada for a bit and then has served as our church body's, one of our church body's mission counselors since then. What that means is he takes the year and his, his full-time position is encouraging, advising anywhere from 40 to 45 different churches every year. Maybe brand new missions, uh, maybe existing ones. And for example, his work also includes this. When Trinity and Woodbridge wanted to start a church here, uh, he's the man who came out and kind of looked at the community and, and met with a number of you and uh, looked at, you know, is it, is it viable? Can we start a church here? But besides that, he, he's worked with like over 300 different pastors and churches. And, and here's, a, here's a thing maybe he doesn't know, so don't tell him. But uh, when we, we get together at pastors' conferences and the, the pastors that are fortunate and blessed enough to have him as their mission counselor, uh, we, we will look at each other and we'll, we'll say, do you know, do you think he knows how much he does for us? And I, I don't think he does because he has been an incredible encourager and incredible credible supporter, not only uh, since my ministry here, our ministry here began in 2016, uh, but even before that. So thank you for all of the encouraging that you give me in my life and my ministry. And also, thanks for being here. My wife says I spend too much time on introductions, and uh, I'm, I'm worried about time because we got six main points, and unlike usual when I do a class or presentation, we really do need to get to the end of it today. So you got four sheets, Six points, you know how Lutheran pastors go that, man, if, if they got an outline this long, you're looking at four weeks worth of stuff, right? We got 45, 50 minutes. Uh, the introduction would be, people have encouraged me for about the last five to 10 years to write a book. I am not a book writer. I'm not, I can barely write a decent sermon, much less write a book. The other reason I don't write a book is that shelf life on a Christian book in, in this culture, even in evangelical circles, is three and a half to four years and then it's outdated. And uh, these are outdated, even paper books are anymore. If I had written a book, this would have been the book. I knew it was coming, I heard about it in 2018, it got written in 2019, it's out. Uh, It's written by a man named Tom Bernardo. I don't know him, but I know the man who wrote the foreword. His name is Larry Osborne, and he's gotten to be a pretty good friend of mine. And this is written with pastors in mind. And it talks about the hardness and the difficulties and the challenges of doing what you're doing, starting a church. I wouldn't disagree with that. What I wish somebody would do is write a book about how hard it is for lay people to start a church. So what I did is I took some of Tom's ideas with Larry's permission, and I tried to focus on, from the lay perspective, what are the challenges in doing what you're doing at the way? Understood? That's the basic premise. And somebody might say, well, You eat, live, breathe this church-starting stuff, and we don't. We got lives. We have vocations. We're here on Sunday morning. Maybe we participate in a life class. You can do all that kind of heavy thinking for us. And, And I would point out, in reality, I do theory. I've been doing theory for about 15 years now since I left the parish. You guys live what's on this sheet. And so I think in a, in a strange sort of way, you're more expert at this than I am. And you have more to say and you feel this more than I do. So with that in mind, let's have at it, shall we? Quote from Larry, frankly, we all tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, greatly underestimate what God can do in five. We want to be at an avalanche, not a glacier. 
but avalanches, while powerful and impressive, don't leave much of a lasting impact. It's the slow-moving glacier that carves out Yosemite. You see what he's saying? So most church planting activity in the U.S. takes place in communities that are not only increasing in population, but that also see a great percentage of transients with that population. Uh, what, what is Fredericksburg? So your population in Fredericksburg proper might continue to, to expand, and certainly in the greater area, it's expanding. That comes into play because in home missions, when we talk about where should we start new churches, we look at places somewhat like we did in the 70s and 80s with the law of the one-thirds. Have you ever heard this? We, we would look at places that are one-third built, one-third planned uh, for being built, and one-third future planning. That was a good place to put a church, very suburban way of thinking. I'm kind of a minority voice in that I don't think that's a good place to put a church anymore. I would rather come into a community that is what I would call a burned over suburban plant from the 1960s and 70s that is now being repopulated by different people and generations. I would rather come in there and start a church. You can get real estate, especially old churches, cheap, rather than going out in a suburban place where you're gonna pay in this area for a raw acre of land, 400, 500,000, what would you guess? In that range? So a million dollars to get three acres, what we usually like to build. So that, that's the theory of it behind where do you start churches. And I think Fredericksburg area is a little bit of both. I couldn't honestly tell you where you guys ultimately should locate um, in that theory. So most of the planting that takes place goes by that one-third, one-third, one-third rule. And the problem with that, from my point of view, is the average expectancy for somebody to stay in a suburban home is roughly three and a half years. That's what it is in the front range of Colorado. I'm guessing here, too, that there's a lot of in and out. Agreed? So keep that in mind. It's going to come up again, that the transience of people being in and out, how does that impact the way that we start a church? Another issue is that next paragraph, we tend to anticipate a duplication of Acts 2.41. Some of you are going to be familiar with this. When I say Pentecost, and Peter stood up and delivered the sermon that day, right? And everybody thought the disciples were drunk because they're speaking in all the different languages that were gathered in that area. And then you get to verse 41, the end of the Pentecost account. How many people came to faith that day? were baptized. Remember the number? It's 3,000, right? And, and so we tend to think, if we start a church, we're going to have thousands of people come to church. It'll be like the new Pentecost. And, and I, you need to keep in mind that that's a descriptive passage there. That is not God saying, every time you deliver a really good sermon, and Matt's a pretty good preacher, but you cannot expect 3,000 people are going to become Christians every weekend, like they did in the first Pentecost. That's a descriptive passage. It's not a prescriptive in which God is saying this will always happen. You also tend to forget, we tend to forget, what were the differences that day between the audience that Peter was talking to and the audience that we're trying to engage in the greater Fredericksburg area. And that's where I put this little thing on your sheet. You can fill in the blanks as we go. Peter's talking in Jerusalem. What was the spiritual background of the group of people he's talking to? They're Jewish. Nominal Jewish or serious Jews? Serious Jews. They're in Jerusalem. They have made this uh, journey to be in Jerusalem for the festival of the weeks or the Pentecost. So they're from all over the Middle East. They have come there. They are serious-minded people. If you're a serious-minded Jew, what did you know? What had you read? Yeah, you've read the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament portion of the Bible. You knew that inside and out. 
contrast that with nowadays. What's the spiritual background of most of the people that you know? Agnostic. Yeah, that'll come up in the sermon, something called the nuns nowadays. N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. But that increasingly in our culture, people say, we have no formal religion. So even those who would say, I am a Christian, are not familiar with the text of the Bible. Matt could probably tell you this from doing Bible information class. You cannot assume in teaching that course nowadays, a basic overview of the Bible, that people even know who Abraham is, or Adam, or even Eve. Residency and longevity. How many of the people would you guess who came to faith that day in Jerusalem were going to hang around Jerusalem the rest of their lives? Just about all of them. The people who were there visiting were going to go back to their home countries and they were going to stay in the place where they grew up. They raised families and they died there. What's true about this area? People move in and out. How many of you were here in uh, 2015 and 16 when I first started coming around and meeting with you? Okay. Are there people from that group, as you remember, who've moved away now? There are. I don't know the exact figure. We could figure it out with something called Mission Insight, but there's got to be transients in this area, which means there's got to be transients within your congregation. People leaving, people moving in. Third thing, when Peter talked on Pentecost, how many of the people trusted the church, if you will? Be that the Old Testament church or the new church, which ironically was called the way. Did you know that? Yeah, just about all of them. How do we feel in the U.S. culture about institutions nowadays? All right, be a governmental, educational, or church. I'll try and say this politely, but uh, what's the number one thing that people think of when they think of American spirituality in the last 20 years? When you think about American spirituality, last 20 years, what would most people say is the first thing that comes to mind? I'll give you a hint. They made a movie about it. The movie was called Spotlight. Yeah, the, the clergy scandal within the Catholic Church. This isn't just Catholicism. This is what people think about the visible Christian church in the United States. We're all kind of like that. So there is no institutional trust. Okay, so here you go. Here's six challenges. I think one of the first weaknesses would be what I would call the great weakening. Much is written about both pastoral and lay leadership in starting a new church. Little is said in those volumes concerning the old maxim that arrogance is leadership's evil twin. Any of you leaders at work, community, you understand what he's saying there? What's the great danger if we're going to presuppose to stand up in front of people and say, here's how you should think, or this is what you should do? What do we got to be careful about? Yeah, being close-minded, know-it-all, arrogant, dictator. That happens in churches, too. Second thing there, congregational life expectancy in 1900 in the U.S. In other words, the way it got started officially, first worship service, 19, or 2017? Okay, what's the life expectancy on this Protestant church? What would you guess? Life expectancy of Protestant church since 1900. Oh, five, 15? It's actually 53. And people tend to think, especially in the East Coast, much higher. Because, again, walking down on Caroline Street, Caroline Street? Caroline Street. Prince Anne? What do you got down there? Baptist, Episcopal, some church that looked to be shuttered up, some big old church. I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, you look at big churches that have been around for 150, 200 years. And East Coasters tend to say, well, a new church gets started, it'll be around for 200 years. Maybe someday I'll go. 
It is 53 years. Uh, and the vast majority of that, by the way, that's falling. Some think it's down below 50 now, is because you said five and you said 15, right? The vast majority of churches are lasting five to 15 years for some of the reasons that we're talking about here. So I'm not saying you're only gonna be around 53 years, but, but that's the norm nowadays. What are some of the reasons? Internal weakening tends to occur in new churches, and I would highlight A, D, and E. I put a bunch of reasons there. I think these are true. Lingering physical conditions are forms of depression. People get tired, and they get frustrated. I don't think it's any more profound than you guys are getting here early on a Sunday morning when you've had a hard week, and you're setting up for, what, 45 minutes? And, and it, get, it gets just old unless you're entirely different from every group I've ever run into. A second one, marital and family stress. It, you got enough commitments in the course of the week to include church in there too, and to be asked to make that number one, that's a stressor, isn't it? Personal financial changes also cause corporate changes. People get fired, people lose jobs. Uh, people have changes in, in their financial picture, and that impacts what goes on at the church. D is, few, is big. Again, how many of you were around in 2016, 17, when we first started this? Have you always all gotten along? Joined hands, saying kumbaya? There been any personality disagreements at all? Oh no, we're Lutherans, we would never say. Yeah, we, we lose our cohesiveness, and then last, our core too is part of the overall urban-suburban transience. We have people come and go. And sometimes it's those real key people that you, you just, think we're going to build a church around that, and boom, uh, they moved to L.A. Well, no, nobody would deliberately, but they move. So we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. I think this is actually an asset. If we recognize we got weaknesses and we face these issues because then we got to rely on Christ. Two and three kind of go together. Truth about methods and success. Church planning in the U.S. is big business, professional church consultants. I'm called a counselor because we hate the word consultant in the Lutheran church. I'm not sure why, but that, that's basically what I do. I come around, give you ideas, and I go away. Maybe the difference is consultant in the business world, you've got to pay attention to them. You're paying big money. I'm not paid extra to come here. I get paid out of Milwaukee. Uh, I'm not a consultant. I'm a counselor in our circles. But there are consultants, and the, the numbers involved are mind-boggling, not just the salaries, but the amount of money that is exchanged in the U.S. in this business, if you want to call it, this industry of starting churches. I put some of them for, in front of you. Uh, it's basically a $300 million industry. And you say, well, how, how can that be? If you get down to the last line of that paragraph, 5,000 new churches around the country start every year. And there's a huge amount of money invested in that. Uh, what, what did it cost you to get the horse trailer and everything for church in a box? Peace and Aiken donated okay. much of it, but if it was all new, was between 50 and 60. 50 and 60. And this is on the low end. I know you think that this is a lot to set up. An evangelical setup, typically just to get it going, what they're going to need by pyrotechnics and sound system and stuff, somewhere between 150 and 175 grand, plus another $100 they're going to inject into a publicity thing for the first 12 to 18 months before they kick off. 
They're talking about a $300,000 to $400,000 investment in equipment and publicity materials before they ever start, and that has nothing to do with salaries or the price of bringing in consultants. So you very quickly begin to understand, yeah, $300 million is maybe on the low end. This is an industry. Keep that in mind. Estimates vary widely. The most reliable sources suggest that 50 to 65% of all those new churches closed within the first five years. You said five years, right? 5,000 new churches a year around the country, Protestant churches, and uh, 50 to 65% of them are going to be closed. The Wisconsin Synod rate is more like 8 to 10% will close in the first five years. What's the difference? That's where blank is. Synod support, yeah. What's your budget here? Total budget of expenditures, anybody know? Are you in 150 to $200,000 range? Just over 200. Just over 200. How much will did you guys sign up for? We requested 119. 119. Yeah. Okay. So about 60 percent budget is coming out of Waukesha. Uh, if we were an evangelical start and your first services were September of 17, so we're at the two and a half year mark. Uh, unless you did a really good job and hooked up with a big donor from usually from somewhere in Texas, <laughs> that's where a lot of Christian money's at who's underwriting this effort, you would not be receiving any outside support. Your staff would have to have part-time jobs or you would have gotten big enough to be able to support a $200,000 to $300,000 venture in a year. So that's part of the reason why we tend to have fewer churches at close is that we underwrite them uh, through our offerings as a church body. Here's the reality. Methodology, strategy, and marketing alone very rarely result in long-term stability. Uh, that's not me as a Lutheran taking a shot at evangelicals and Baptists. That is their own studies. And, and here's the truth about so-called megachurches that do get off the ground and get going. They have to replace roughly 25% of their people every year. They have that much going in the front door of the church and that much going out the back door. That is a staid figure that they have to plan on that uh, four years from now, effectively, our whole church will have turned over. We look at mega churches and think, man, that's got to be the way to go. They have unique challenges because they depend heavily on marketing and strategy to keep bringing in new people to replace the old people because they do not teach the depth of Scripture. Now, that is a criticism, not from me only, but internally they found that to be true. People don't stay because they end up finding there is no there there. There is no depth. Making sense? There truly are no experts, mere participants. I'm not an expert. I can't tell you what to do to grow a church. I can observe things I've seen around the country and say this would be a good idea. Think about it. But there are no experts or the other bullet points underneath are the reasons why. The church isn't an attractional business. It's a living organism. Bible says so. We can talk about marketing and church growth all we want. At the end of the day, God does what God's going to do. And marketing has very little to do with it. God never has been, never will be subject to predictability. And then the big ones, we're up against the devil. We just are. You're seeking to do a good thing and it does not please him. God allows him the freedom to run around the world. And part of what he does, I'm, I'm convinced, he opposes what you're trying to do at the way. Now, am I dissing marketing? N no. And that passage uh, is going to come up in uh, the third point here. These two are really closely tied together. And anything in that second point, though, that you want to object to or add to? 
Yeah, one thing I'm super fascinated by is that a church is at once, you know, the body of Christ, a living organism. And then at the same time, we do have to treat ourselves like an organization and we do have to have budgets, request subsidy, all of that. Um, But that was one of the points that stood out to me most is just thinking of this as a living organism. And that's why you can't necessarily um, rely on at all methodology, strategy. So can you say more about the implications of just a church as a living organism subject to God's unpredictability? Yeah, it'll come out a little bit more in the the sermon. Uh, Anybody my age in the 60s? How are your knees doing, man? Your knees are good? Okay, any part of your body aching at all? The back, okay. Rich, okay. And I, I wouldn't have to go to the 60-year-olds. I could have hit up some of you 20 and 30-year-olds. You got body aches, stuff like that. All right, so what did Jesus mean when he says the church is a body? Well, part of it he explains by saying the hand isn't the foot. You got different functions. But I think it, implicitly he's also saying the body breaks. And there's parts that don't work in a sin-tainted world. And I think that's true of the body of the church. We, we got things that go wrong. So there's a cohesiveness, a positive side. There's also a negative side when he says, you're the body of Christ. And it doesn't always function as well as it, as it should. I, I want to comment about your church is not attractional. Church is attractional. The attraction is the gospel. People are looking for connection. They're looking for a relationship. So the attraction is the gospel, but that's manifested to the people in this room. Right. It's the leaders that create an atmosphere that people want to come back to. Even after the budget and all the music, it's the people that create an atmosphere that people want to come back to. Yep. And uh, that's why I'm here. And that's, uh, that's my comment on your comment. Right. And, and that's a good discussion point, and I should probably unpack that a little bit. I should have maybe put in an adverb that said it's not exclusively an attractional business. And the proof of that is church planting methodology since the 70s. The godfather of church planting in the United States, a guy by the name of Bill Hybels, got a huge church going on the south side of Chicago. Ten years ago, Bill Hybels stood in front of 5,000 church planters and said, didn't work. Now, why not? He did a study of his 25,000-member church and said, they don't know the Bible. They never got around to the gospel. Now, what you and I assume in our little conservative Lutheran church does not happen in the vast majority of church planning in the United States. They never get around to the gospel. And what do they settle for then? It's an attractional business, either through lights or music or personality of a pastor who are attracting people. So I would wholeheartedly endorse what you're saying. I should have put an adverb in there and said, it's not exclusively an attractional business. It is attractional through the gospel. Third point. So, persistently seeking, deliberately retaining. What follows is a time-honored, time-adhered-to viability formula. I'm just going to have you guys read that for yourselves and see what you think. So, read down to where the ink gets dark. And uh, we're adults here. Don't be shocked by the last line. Show you what that indented paragraph's talking about. Anybody remember the attendance at the first public worship service of the way? 91, because Matt Popolier said that we should count uh, Julian, who is inside of Emily, and I believe, uh, let's see, Whitney, uh, you were pregnant with Delaney at the time, so really 89, but we counted both of them because they were 
you know, we, we say that's life. Do you put that on your monthly report? No one has to know about that. Yeah. So th- this indented paragraph is the American Protestant Church formula, if you will. If you just plug in the number 200, I didn't put it there deliberately, but they anticipate that unless you have 200 people at your first service, which will go down to roughly 100 and more likely 75, and then it will ascend if you stick at it and you get up to 150. And that's the break-even point in the American mindset, the American business approach to starting a church. Uh, And if you don't get there, because that will generate enough income through offerings and donations that you can have paid staff and rent a place, build a building, yada, 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 and away you go. Uh, That's a very business approach. So one observer of churches for 45 years, he's an older guy than me, I've only been doing it 37. That's his line. Very godly man, strong language, isn't it? Think about what he's saying. If all we're settling for is enticement, that that's an indictment, I think, what's going on for the large part 50 years. And I just pointed out to you as a way of saying we have to be mindful of that. What we're going to be is Bible-centered people. We will market ourselves. We make ourselves available. We engage the community. So what do we do? Here's some suggestions. Pray for and then provide doors of opportunity. Understand your circle of influence eight to 15 people. That comes from the social and psych people who say basically most of us have eight to 15 in our inner circle. They listen to us, we listen to them. Friends, relatives, neighbors, that's where your church comes from of the future as you invite people. Mornings with mommy is a strategy that has worked around the country, uh, along with Advent by candlelight. Have you ever done that here or heard of it? Anybody ever done an Advent by candlelight? So who, men or women, who does Advent by candlelight? Who does mornings with mommy? Are you seeing a theme here? Where do Protestant churches, particularly Lutheran churches, tend to grow from? Is it through male or female relationships? Female. Now, I would tell you in all honesty, and I'm not just trying to give you big heads, proportionally, there are more men here today than what I will usually see when I talk to a mission congregation. You guys always have been, and and today also are pretty well represented by by a percentage of men that you have here. Somewhat unusual. Uh, Statistically, even in Wisconsin Synod, we are 66% female, 34% male. And that should tell us something both about the way we go about things, but also how do we attract others, where do we make relationships, Oftentimes, it's going to be through things what ladies are good at. Now, having said Advent by candlelight, this year I heard for the first time a new trend. It's called Advent by firelight. Have you heard of this one? Yeah, the oh. campfires for dudes? Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a couple of churches, the ladies were inside the church, decked out, gathering around the gospel, high-end hors d'oeuvres kind of stuff, and just just wonderful, beautiful, meaningful stuff. Outside are the guys watching some kids, middle winter, made a huge campfire and talked about the gospel. And in some cases, popped a beer and talked spiritual things. Now, am I against it? No, it's just different, isn't it? Do it if you want. Uh, Early childhood variations, accessibility and relationship with a pastor. That's, I'm with just a 30 second soapbox Matt told me that you guys do so much by way of setup 
that what he needs to do or is asked to do on a Sunday morning is preach and teach and greet people. And whatever you can do to hang on to that, do it. And here's why it's important. When, when people visit a church, what do they want to see and who do they want to see? They do want to see the pastor because of the lack of institutional trust. And not to put any more pressure on Emily, but just as much nowadays they want to talk to the wife. This is a huge sociological change in just the last 15 years. They don't want to be distanced from the guy up front. They'll come back if they like what they hear. Nowadays they want to meet him and see, can I trust him? And can I trust his wife? So whatever you can do to make access to your pastor available on Sunday and throughout the course of the week, do it as a church. Bible information class. How many of you have gone through Bible information class with Mac? That, that's uniquely Lutheran nowadays. Most Protestant denominations have only a one or two lesson thing, and then you're in the club. They don't cover the whole counsel of God. And then meaningful roles of service in the congregation, outside the congregation. Now, turn the page, and then we'll end up number three. Anybody own a Kirby vacuum? Used to. Why'd you buy it? And did they do that face-to-face -face or online? Okay, why is Kirby Vacuum still around even in this era of online purchases? Reputation and face-to-face, -face, yeah. I, I think that they tie into something that, that we got to pay attention to. Why do most people continue to come to a new church nowadays? They, yeah, they met a person. They had a personal invitation. That was true in 1970. 80% of people came to new church at the invitation of a friend. It is true in 2019 and into 2020. That's one of the few things that has not changed. 80% of new people who come and eventually join a church came because a friend invited them. Did the Kirby, Kirby vacuum cleaner presentation. I found something there. It works. It's good. So here's the marketing. Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. Romans 10, how are they going to call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? That's describing lay people, not pastors. Roman number four. Hey, Mark, I got a, I got a question. Yeah. Um, and it's really just asking you to comment on attention. I see you said there's a lot of relation between point or section two and section three. Um, I see a uh, interesting tension between section one and three, and that is that, like, we acknowledge that there are going to be uh, losses in, in, in any church of any, you know, time. You asked uh, how many of the core group have moved away. I think moved away is 40 percent, and uh, there's one more family that's going to move from that core group this summer, and so that would bring us to close to half have moved, and acknowledging that and the uh, I mean, just the transience of the area and just the, oh, this is going to sound bad, but like the, the frailty of the church planting business with the fact that 53 years isn't a long time, five years isn't a long time. So whatever number on the life expectancy you put on this with the idea that what we're building is uh, relationships that take time and take investment and the word of God. And this is a point you covered in the second section. Um, that is not an overnight thing. That is a slow process. So just, yeah, what would you encourage with regards to our attitudes looking at both of those truths? It's, yep. it's a frail thing, and yet it takes time for a meaningful 
investment, both spiritually and relationally with, with people? As far as relationships, I kind of hinted at that one. I, I think the best outcome that we can observe, I, I don't want to program Jesus here. Men can share their faith with men and invite men. What we observed in the American church and also in Lutheranism is a lot of initial contact on a spiritual level for the church happened through women. As far as the other piece of advice I would give you is I would say as a pastor, you shoot for depth and as a group of people who come on Sunday morning, ask for depth. I, I encourage pastors to preach harder sermons and to tackle harder books. I'm doing that this morning. I'm, I'm your preacher this morning. We're looking at Ephesians 2. I think Ephesians is the hardest book in the Bible. And I, I don't apologize for that, that we would go after depth, because I hear it all the time from people who end up in our Lutheran church. Why did you stay here? Somebody unpacked the Bible for me and didn't just treat me like a 10-year-old. They went for the deeper and the harder stuff. I think that's our niche in the Protestant scene in the United States. Don't, don't apologize for the depth of the Bible, rather teach the depth of the Bible. Roman number four, core groups and launch teams grow weary. Core group tends to be what I met with when I first came here. There were a group of you who were going to church in Woodridge but lived in this area. We start to call that a launch team when you start holding public worship services. So in, interchangeable, same people. Typical challenges include, but are not limited to, uh, we get unrealistic individual collective expectations. I'm going to join a new church and this will all be wonderful. Sometimes we have hidden personal agendas, such as I get a personal chaplain. Uh, where, where this tends to show up is, showed up for me personally in 84. Our attendance at the first services throughout the year had been started at 50, went down to the 30s, and then we started to grow year after year after year in a 21-year pattern. There was growth every year. And when we got to about 75 or 80 in, in worship attendance, people began to say, I miss when it felt like family. And what, what's your average attendance here? We're right there. You're right 73. there. What does that person mean? I miss when it felt like family. The dynamic changes. So isn't it a weird thing? We, we somewhat resent the fact that we've grown, because now we don't know everybody as well, right? And some of that goes back to, in some cases, what they're really saying is, I liked having a personal chaplain. You know, th this is why it becomes important for you to make sure that new people have access to Matt. At the end of the day, Americans who are looking at a church want to know who the pastor is, but you can't have him as a personal chaplain. It, it just doesn't work. You, you guys have, what do you call them, life groups here? Yeah, that, that's going to be the key to your success, humanly speaking, is you don't just rely on Sunday morning to be a place of depth and discussing life, but you do that with one another. Okay, another issue, misunderstanding, catchphrases such as authentic community and re relevant message. Every Protestant church the last 40 years has used that. In our own way, we probably said the same thing. We're going to be real. We're going to have depth, yada, yada, yada. Uh, people misinterpret that. Authentic community means you're going to be my best buddy for friend, for, for life. You're going to hang out with me every day. That's some people's expectation when they join. No, no, I'm not. Relevant message? Well, one person's relevant is not another person's relevant. And Americans are consumers when they approach the church, and they have different expectations. 
And then both insiders and outsiders want to avoid conflict. We're going to join a church, which is a place of peace. And we'll never again have a disagreement. <laughs> Anybody read the Bible lately? <laughs> Particularly the New Testament. I'll give you some examples. You remember what the conflicts were within the New Testament? In Corinth? Just to, to fill in some blanks real quick. They had sexual deviance within the congregation that Paul had to say even the, even the heathen would say that's wrong. They brought each other to lawsuits. Anybody got that ticked off at church yet? Were you going to sue one another? I had it happen in 85. The guy who was the electrician did some work for another guy. He was the chairman of the congregation. He didn't get paid on time. He was going to take him to court. So this stuff is kind of still around nowadays. People were boasting, I was baptized by this person. Well, I was baptized by that person. That kind of thing still goes on to this day. Galatia, this is what you can eat. You have to be circumcised. We have to keep these rituals. Thessalonica, all sorts of different thoughts on the second coming of Christ. And Colossae was just awful because everybody was confused by who Jesus was. And you have variations on how should we treat Jesus. It's the clearest book in the Bible that explains Jesus, Christ, Colossae. And it had to be written that way because there were so many dissimilar opinions within the congregation. So here's another thing that I think becomes a challenge. If, if this were an evangelical church, and I walked in this morning, you're setting up, you probably would have had T-shirts on, looked like roadies. For the evangelicals, this is somewhat sacramental, this setting up process and the sound check. They'll do it for 15, 20, 25 years. We have a church in suburban Denver. Attendance is in the 500s now at Smoky Hill High School. They've been around. They started the same year as what I started in 83. They don't ever plan to build. And I visited there. They meet it. They never plan to build. They like the setup and stuff like that. In contrast, there's Lutherans. We got church in the box here. How many of you want to keep doing this forever? Have any of you grown weary with it? I think you can disagree with me. I think it's because we have a different view of what goes on at church. The fancy word for this is transcendence. We believe that in the Bible and through communion and through baptism, God's coming to us. And we like dedicated God space for that to go on. We don't view this so much as an entertainment thing, even though we got good sound system and appearance. We think it's transcendence, and therefore I don't think we got as long that we will tolerate setting up. Am I telling you to buy a building tomorrow? No. Am I saying this could be real? I'm seeing it more and more in Lutheran groups that our life expectancy on this is 45 years. So learn to deal with the realities. I've mentioned most of these. I would just highlight that fourth bullet point there. Because of the transience factor, I would encourage you as a church to, to take a close look at who you are every year and build what you do around your own talents and your availability that you have in that given year. I'll just touch on five and six. The back door is real. People start a church. I mean, people attend a church, visit a church, maybe even join the church, and then they go out the back door. I don't think it's any more profound than what Jesus said in Matthew 13. He told a parable, farmers cast a seed. Do you remember where some of the seed landed at first? First it's on the road or the path. Just gets trampled. And then on the rocks. And then the third one, among the weeds. And the disciples 
I think all the time they must have said, what does that parable mean? This is one of the times where Jesus said, I'll tell you what it means. So on the path means people don't understand. On the rocky soil, they had no roots. Stuff happened, and, and they just lost their faith. The thorns, the worries of this world, particularly pointed out money, wealth. So they gave up on Christ. And then the good soil, they heard the message, and by working of the Spirit, they understood. So also in play in a culture where Christianity has been prevalent for 300 years is spiritual consumerism practiced by the unconverted and the spiritually immature. Some people look at a church and say, I liked it, but I don't want to grow anymore. I like being a baby Christian. That doesn't fit, not just with a Lutheran perspective, but with a biblical perspective. Book of Hebrews, get off of milk, start chewing some meat. So you don't have to apologize for going for depth again. Uh, all sorts of books and all resources available, I'll simply suggest you teach newcomers to count the cost. And if they're going to come here to understand this is different from what they hear in the culture. It, it just is. Part five there, teach newcomers to count the cost. Can you just say, uh, practically, what does that look like, end of a bick type thing? What, what, or to one another consistently, what does it look like to say, here, count the cost? The cost is going to come in terms of, if, if you're going to hang around this church, we're going to go after some depth. You can't just take a Bible information class. You've got to get in a life group. You've got to be one to read the text. You've got to be one to bounce ideas off one another. It's, there's probably going to be involved life change. Uh, there, there's probably some, some hobbies that you had that maybe you're going to have to give up. Some uh, relationships that you might have to walk away from because they pull you away from Christ. Sunday morning is going to look different. This is really important, this one hour, uh, and that's countercultural. So I, I would just teach people, count the cost. Don't, don't just say I'm going to affiliate with this church in, in a blind, simplistic, childish way. Real quick on number six then, running with pace is an aggressive model. I'm not a distance runner. I just hear this from people who went through the torture of running marathons and cross country. Anybody a runner here? Tell me if I'm crazy on, on this, but you got to have persistence and pace yourself, right? So that's the way a church should go about its business. This is not a dash. This isn't even a 440. Uh, this is a long run. This is a marathon, this church planting. And so there from a Japanese theologian, the Lord is a three mile an hour God. I hung on to that one because that's what it takes me to walk three miles. I'm about an 18 to 20 minute guy as far as pace. Some basic questions. If you go down under the number five, how long did you think this was going to take? Have any of you grown a little bit weary? Think about those things. Talk about it in, in your groups. And then go back to the Bible passages. God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. I'm going to pick up on that in the sermon in a little bit, too, what it means to be the church and to be persistent with one another. And I guess I would just say those four bullet points at the end, that's the gist of what I want you to keep in mind. This is a marathon. Be persistent. You're constantly growing in your faith as a group and as individuals. <laughs> 